Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. You might have heard about several innovations the Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate has been coming out with during this pandemic. Remember the process of sanitizing masks using a multi-cooker? That was the work of the agency's Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center. The center's lead, general biological scientist Lloyd Huff, comes from a microbiology background. We learned a bit more about the center's work and how his scientific expertise is helping government's Homeland Security R&D branch support the pandemic response. Lloyd, thanks so much for joining us on GovCast. It's great to have you. Happy to be here. So your background is a bit interesting. You're a microbiologist by trade. Kind of thinking back in your history, what got you interested in that field to begin with? I imagine it like most people, I think. I started to enjoy, you know, you're, you're good at the things that you enjoy. And I was always good at, uh, and I always enjoyed the life sciences uh, as a student in high school. I wasn't a particularly great student. I didn't particularly care for English or history or a lot of the other classes I had to take. But the life sciences was just something that always kind of came naturally to me. And of course, I had a couple of teachers in high school that uh, really got me started by challenging me and making the subject matter very interesting. And that was really where it began. And that continued into college. I had a brief stint in college where I thought I wanted to be a, uh, an engineer. And then I discovered that I did not like math, enjoy math as much to be able to be an engineer. So I ended up going back to my original passion, which was microbiology. And now that brought you to DHS S&T. So what brought you to the agency? So that, that was, I, I suppose, fate. This has kind of been um, something that I have done for a long time. At the end of my doctoral studies, I started to look for a job. And the job that I got in uh, 1999 was working for a company called Battelle. And Battelle is a significant contractor for the U.S. government, and they do a lot of research. And the research that I started doing was in the biodefense area. And shortly after 1999, when I started there, we had the 9-11 incidents. And after 9-11, somebody mailed anthrax to uh, several officials and media companies. And that started a whole lot of interest in biodefense in the United States government. And being a microbiologist there, that's kind of what got me started. So having started there and having had 9-11 happen, you know, that was where DHS was created. And shortly after DHS was created, DHS became the funder of a lot of the biodefense research that I was working on. So I started working for DHS as soon as they really started funding projects in about 2003-2004. And then DHS began to build its NBAC, its National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center Laboratory on Fort Detrick in about 2004. And the company I was working for won the contract to operate that laboratory. So then I went and I started working with DHS S&T at the NBAC on Fort Detrick as that lab's construction was being completed. And then eventually I got an opportunity to move to Washington, D.C. and come to support the program directly by providing the, the technical support to the project management office. And yeah, it just kind of kept going from there. Wow. 
Well, when we think about biodefense, I mean, really, for anyone old enough to remember 9-11, that's probably like the most pivotal moment for that area. So, you know, the anthrax scare and all of that. So that's pretty interesting. And especially with DHS being so new, I guess, and, you know, the relative history of government, it's interesting how ST kind of merges those two fields, you know, Homeland Security, and then, of course, the research and the science that goes into it. So is this your first venture into public service? It is. I've been working for the U.S. government indirectly doing biodefense for about 20 years, but this is the first time I've done it as a federal employee. Now, you lead the Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center. What exactly does that do at the agency? So the Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center is uh, one of about seven or eight. I'm not sure exactly how many we have right now technology centers within the S&T's Office of Science and Engineering. And we support other S&T programs that are working to develop technical solutions by bringing subject matter expertise to bringing that senior scientist or that data scientist or somebody who is involved in communications. And we bring those expertise in the sciences and in engineering fields that are cross-cutting so that we can begin to apply the expertise that we have across programs and across DHS's mission space. So we support other S&T programs and we support the other components as well directly as they have needs for that subject matter expertise. The Technology Center really is looking at the HackTC that I work for, the Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center. The HackTC is focused on understanding and providing that expertise on chemical, biological, and explosive threats that could threaten homeland security. So we do basic and applied research to make sure that we can identify both opportunities and risks that the department might need to be prepared for in the future. And what exactly is meant by characterization in this term? Since the goal of HackTC is to understand what these hazards are, the process of being both aware and being able to understand what those risks are requires you to know to know something about those risks. And so in the case of chemicals, what is the toxic dose? How much does somebody have to be exposed to or how do they have to be exposed to it? The same thing is true on the biologicals is understanding again, what is the infectious dose? How can you get sick if you're exposed to a particular agent? What are its other properties that might enable us to detect it or to clean it up or remove it from a surface so it's no longer a hazard? And so what we do is we do characterization. We try and search through the published literature to find those properties if they're already known. And if they're not known, we identify them as gaps that perhaps DHS or another government agency might need to fill. Interesting. So there's a lot of characterizing of dangerous, potentially threats to our national security. How has your background in microbiology kind of contributed to the public service aspect of what you're doing? 
What I contribute to is understanding the security perspective. The department is most concerned with preventing terrorism, and we focus on understanding those agents' chemical, biological, and explosive that a terrorist might try to smuggle into the United States or smuggle onto an airplane or use to hurt the American people in some way. And so we focus on understanding what some of those risks are and what those properties are. And we try to be able to understand the relative risk that each of them poses. There are lots of toxic chemicals and there are lots of pathogenic microbes that a terrorist could theoretically use, but the harm or the risk of each of them causing harm is different because of the properties of the agent. And so we look to understand what those are and we use that information to help our programs that are trying to build detectors that a firefighter might employ or to develop a forensic method that a law enforcement agency would use to conclusively link that particular material, that hazard, with a specific person who was trying to cause harm. That's very interesting and incredibly important mission as well. So how, where has the agency contributed during this pandemic, considering the microbiological threat of coronavirus? Where do you see the agency helping most? So one of the things that we do because of our mission in trying to prevent terrorism with biological agents, we built the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center. And that laboratory has some very unique capabilities that were designed to help us understand and defend against biological weapons. And the coronavirus, because it's transmitted through the air, can allow us to leverage some of those unique resources. We also have a very applied view. We're not looking to discover a new microbe or to discover how necessarily they work, but rather we're looking at each of the agents to solve very specific operational concerns. How do we detect it? How do we remove it? How do we protect people from the hazard that might be there? And because of that very operational focus and because of the unique capabilities that the lab has, we have done studies on the coronavirus, such as the stability of the virus on surfaces and in aerosols. When somebody who is infected with the coronavirus coughs or sneezes or now even talks or sings, they're generating particles, little droplets. Some are small and so small that you can't see them, and some of them are reasonably large. And because those aerosols are being generated, we can recreate those in the laboratory with the virus and understand how long do they travel? How long does the virus survive in those droplets? Those droplets also, once they're produced, they don't stay in the air indefinitely. They will eventually land on surfaces. And at the beginning of the outbreak, one of the things that we did, we did a, um, one of the things that the Hazard Awareness and Characterization Technology Center did was we generated what we call a, a master question list. And that master question list breaks down what we think we need to know about the virus so that we can both model risk and plan our response to it. So it breaks this, what we need to know, down into about 15 very high-level questions. What is the infectious dose? How is the infectious agent transmitted? What are the symptoms of infection? 
who is infected, how are they infected, do they have to inhale it, do they have to ingest it, can it go through the skin. Those are the basic questions that are asked in the MQL. And when we developed that list in early January, what we found was that there were certain gaps. We didn't know what the infectious dose was. We did not know how stable it was in the air or if it was stable in the air at all. And so we were able, because of the capabilities of the NBAC, we were able to conduct those studies and determine that the virus does survive in the air. It survives better in colder, drier air than it does in warmer, more humid air. And we've also determined that it's very susceptible to sunlight. So outside, this is why we say that the risk outdoors is much lower than the risk indoors is because outside the virus can be exposed to the sun and the ultraviolet rays in the sun kill the virus. We've also done evaluations of the effectiveness of a number of different disinfectants. The EPA has a very long list of disinfectants that they recommend for cleaning surfaces that might be contaminated with SARS-CoV. But at the beginning of the outbreak, since it was such a new virus, they had actually never been tested against that virus itself. So we got the virus and we began to do tests of some of the more commonly available ones like household bleach and isopropanol and ethanol. And we were able to demonstrate that some of those were very effective at killing the virus, both in the, the wet droplets that might just land on a surface and the dry droplets after they've had an, an opportunity to evaporate. We've also looked at the effectiveness of certain methods of cleaning or decontaminating personal protective equipment like an N95 respirator. Obviously, respirators are in limited supply, and um, we needed fast, widely available means to decontaminate those. So we have demonstrated that you can use moist heat generated with an electric multi-cooker to kill the virus that might be on an N95 mask without damaging the mask or affecting its ability to filter out the hazardous aerosols. I did hear about the infamous multi-cooker innovation over there, so that's interesting. And certainly there's a lot of unknown still, so it's obvious how important the scientific work that you and uh, your colleagues do on a daily basis. So when you think about public-private partnerships in the general scientific field, especially in your current position from your point of view, where do you see the future of those partnerships and how important they are to furthering kind of the national security mission? I think the public-private partnerships are critical uh, in the biology field and most fields. The vast majority of, I think, technological developments, particularly in biology, come from what are already informal public-private partnerships. The National Institutes of Health and HHS are significant funders of academic research that occurs at universities. And as they understand the basics of the underlying biology, that translates into things that the private industry can turn into useful tools or medicines or other solutions for the problems that we have and that we can buy. And as an example, I know DHS's um, Silicon Valley Innovation Program have recently put out a call for proposals in several of the areas that we need help from and that we think that folks in the private sector may already have a solution that can be adapted to solve some of our unique problems. That's great and fantastic to hear. I always love hearing those successes. 
So thinking about the technology side of things, how does technology enable you to carry out some of the work that is so important to your center? Technology is how we get stuff done from, you know, being able to do that work while teleworking at home to being able to work in the laboratory. So within the the HackTC, we're much more of a monitoring rather than a developing sort of function right now. What we do is we look at developments that are occurring in the biological and chemical sciences to understand where there are opportunities and risks. And we look forward to the development of improved means that will allow us to look broader and look deeper at some of those like AI or machine learning. But up at the NBAC, the NBAC is an amazing technological building in of itself that is designed to safely contain those the dangerous pathogens that they work with within the laboratory so that even the people working there are well protected. And then they bring to bear a wide range of disciplines and technological pieces of equipment from computers that do bioinformatics on the the sequences that exist to understand how they're changing or how they're staying the same to understand where something might have come from. So being able to track either the source of an infection or the source of a piece of evidence They then bring together things like electron microscopes that allow us to look at the particles and look at the virus and the other parts of those agents. And then, of course, we have the aerobiology expertise within that laboratory where we have built some very unique pieces of equipment that allow us to create small aerosol clouds within containment so that they're controlled, but allow us to adjust the temperature and adjust the humidity and adjust the sunlight and be able to introduce, uh, we're working to be able to introduce atmospheric contaminants like ozone or other pollution, because all of that has an impact on the survival of pathogens in those aerosols and all of it changes the risk. So thinking about, you know, I know we're deep in this pandemic right now and your office is working toward that, but thinking about what's ahead, is there anything that is especially interesting to you that you kind of put your microbiologist lens on to want to dive into more? Is there anything on the horizon? There are lots of a lots of threats and there are continuing developments in technology that will change both how we defend the country and what we have to defend against. And so there, you know, new developments like uh, genome editing and CRISPR-Cas9 are developments that we pay very careful attention to. But then we also have to be concerned about the reemergence of disease. There are historical diseases that have long been, you know, that we've known about for hundreds of years. And then there are reemerging diseases, things like tuberculosis and multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And, and so we kind of watch all of them and we were looking for both technological developments that will help us solve those problems as well as identifying those developments that might create new risks. When you're looking ahead to some of your future projects, how do you apply lessons learned from previous initiatives into those? So as we do things, we always learn as we're going along. And as an example, one of the things that we learned in 2014, there was an Ebola outbreak. And that Ebola outbreak, very quickly, we wanted to know 
again, what do we know about this virus? What do we need to know about this virus? And that was the basis for developing that was originally when the, the master question list was developed. And so each time that we go through this, we understand more about those threats and about what we need to know. And we employ that to make our response to the next event better. We focus our laboratory capabilities. We make sure that we're established and we have those methods in place in order to generate the data that we need to respond and respond more effectively to a future threat as they occur. We're always getting better and improving on ourselves. Always getting better <laughs> and always striving to be better. That's fantastic. Now, I guess to close our chat, thinking back when you got, you know, your first interest into this field in the science and life sciences field, did you ever think you would end up in national defense and public service? It was not what I was expecting as a student or as a graduate student, but once I began to get a taste for it, the sense of being able to do something important to help the security of the country has always been very motivating. And it is really, really what we strive to do is to keep the American people safe. That's great. And I certainly appreciate the science that goes into many of the issues that we face and, uh, of course, the work that technologists bring in order to accomplish those. So. Thanks so much, Lloyd, for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you hear, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Sponsor at